WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week we have the writer of the upcoming Homesick Pilots from Image Comics and the picture of everything else from Vault, uh, Dan Waters. Uh, from one Dan to another, uh, welcome. Uh, thanks very much. Cheers, Ben. Uh, so uh, what, what comics do you remember reading when you first got into them? Oh, man, I, I, I tweeted about this the other, like, the other week. Um, my godmother worked at a like, small like, UK publisher that licensed a lot of um, American stuff. So when I was about like, eight or nine, she, let me, like, she took me to her office. She let me pick some stuff out. And the thing I really remember like, coming home with and just reading over and over was um, both the uh, Claremont Miller Wolverine, Mm. Uh, which I was probably too young for, and um, Graham Higgins' adaptation of Mort, uh, the Terry Pratchett novel, which is a which is a wonderful adaptation as well. Like, there's been a few Pratchett adaptations into different mediums that that haven't worked as well, but I think that that graphic novel really holds up. Mm-hmm. And I and I really think the DNA of everything that I've done professionally pretty much is like it can be like rooted back to those two books specifically. <laughs> you know, saying that it I yeah I can see the, the some of that Pratchett and I'm a huge huge Pratchett fan and I can absolutely yeah. Oh, likewise, yeah. I, I think I think a lot of Pratchett worked its way into Lucifer. Uh, yeah, that was kind of right where my brain went. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, otherwise it would have been too morbid. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so uh, let's let's start out talking about uh, Homesick Pilots, uh, which is your uh, upcoming image series with Casper uh, Weingard. Uh, I'll read the uh, solicit text to kind of save you the trouble there. Uh, in the summer of 1994, a haunted house walks across California. Uh, inside is uh, is Amy, lead singer of a high school punk band who's been missing for weeks. How did she get there? What did these go? And what do these ghosts want? Uh, expect three chord songs and big bloody action. That's Power Rangers meets The Shining, uh, and then parenthetically, yes, really. Uh, so, uh, what is what, what's the origin of the series? Because uh, you know this this is one of those where I read it and I was immediately like, yeah, all right, yeah, hook this to my veins uh, immediately, please and thank you. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember okay, the last right. image yeah, book where I, like the pitch hit me like that, and I think it was like Shirtless Bear Fighter three years ago. <laughs> And yeah, I mean, Casper and I have worked together before. Um, <laughs> we did that. We did our first book together, actually, uh, Limbo, um, which uh, first issue that came out in two thousand and fifteen. Um, and yeah, that was that was with Image as well, and that really sort of kickstarted um, both of our careers. Um, we've been doing different things. We've always kind of we'd always kind of talked about coming back to limbo as like a, a world or, a, or an idea. Um, and when the stars like finally aligned for us to, to have time to do that time and space to, to go back to image and say like, Hey, we want to do, we'll do something else. Um, we ended up not doing that at all because we had the idea for homesick pilots and we fell in love with it so much um, that we just sort of abandoned our prior plans. <laughs> um, but because I think the, the origin sort of still came in that, space in that we were designing new characters for limbo and we came up with these punk kids and i was this um absolutely off the rails punk teenager um 
like that was that was most of my my youth was sort of cider bottles on Camden Lock and uh, going to squad shows and all that kind of stuff, which was like great great fun at the time and you know at terms sort of very scary and and dangerous and just like the most fun you could sort of have as a as a 15 year old spiking your hair up with wood glue and dyeing it bright red and all that kind of stuff um and yeah just i really wanted to dig into once we started started looking at these characters i just really wanted to sort of dig into their lives and, and what what their stuff was about um and the haunted house the walks um sort of came from the idea that um like a haunted house should, uh, I think, generally speaking, is like it's a, it's a metaphor for a head, right? Um, it's a, it's a it's a container in which you have these ghosts, which I think is a really good way of describing any of our brains, right? It's a it's a container with lots of good things and bad things and and memories and not so pleasant memories, and the idea of this this sort of metaphor, and I think it gets uh, the the haunted house as this kind of metaphor sometimes gets a bit. A bit lost and it gets a bit twisted and there have been a few things recently sort of bigger haunted house things which I won't I won't name by name but um have kind of like I think fluffed that metaphor up quite badly and sort of it's always become about vanquishing the ghosts and if you can defeat the ghosts you can sort of like move on and everything's going to be great and that's that's not what happens uh at all mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's not what you get to do with your ghosts because if you get rid of them then you're also getting rid of part of what makes you you um so the idea that that instead you have to you have to walk with your ghosts and you have to sort of move with them um move forward with them sort of led us quite quickly to the idea of a walking house <laughs> which uh you know definite amazing imagery uh you know at what point did the the power rangers meets the shining analogy come into play you know obviously <laughs> With, with indie books, you know, you need that hook in, in the solicited text to kind of compete with other books on the shelf and, and, you know, give readers some sort of frame of reference. You know, was that something you came with, up with in, in pitching it? You know, I, I guess, you know, for lack of a better phrasing of this question, when, when would it become morphin time? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the more, we look, the more we sort of worked on it, the more we sort of um, developed this idea. I mean, we, we came to the idea of sort of using like mecha stuff quite quickly. Um, like Casper and I are both like really big manga fans and mm-hmm. I've not really explored that influence uh, very much in the work I've done before. I've done sort of dark and sort of twisty and more the more ratchet stuff, the more sort of that kind of end of, of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really wanted to do something that was just sort of big and clean and had sort of big dramatic moments that weren't sort of, reliant on twists and turns and and sort of could just stand on their own and just pull 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 you through and yeah that that sort of made us really sort of lean into sort of looking at stuff like pluto and looking at stuff like like even sort of common rider and sort of big clean storytelling and those kind of stories um so i mean power rangers probably wouldn't be the first one <laughs> that came into our minds Although that say that being said, last time I did go up and stay with Casper because he lives, he used to live in London uh, where I am, and he he moved quite far away. Mm-hmm. Um, the last time I went up, we did get very drunk and watch the new Power Rangers movie. Um, <laughs> it was new at the time, so that 
that might have worked its way in there somehow. Um, but yeah, like we sort of, once we started playing with the mecha idea and the idea of like ghosts having or being a source of different kind of powers, it kind of leads you there to that, that kind of space quite quickly. When you talk about uh, an anime influence, I then my mind immediately flashed to uh, Howl's Moving Haunted House. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, which is a which is an English novel, right? So so there's the uh, the 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 yeah, it all comes full circle. Um, so so music is is a big part of this book, and and because you know you've got at least in the first issue, you've got these two dueling. Uh, bands and also it's set in 1994 which you know speaking personally at least was a big musical year uh in my life you know what was what was young dan waters jamming to in uh, 94 in 94 i was three okay never mind um, <laughs> so <laughs> wheels on the bus wheels on the bus <laughs> Um, yeah, no, we sort of dug into that that era, I think, kind of for different reasons. Casper's a bit older than me, so so for him, that is his kind of um, or close closer to his sort of teen years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always just kind of had old older tastes. Um, I'm a, you know, like I said, I was like a big punk fan, um, and the peaks of that those those movements kind of came before before my time but mm-hmm. they've always sort of survived and morphed and evolved into different shapes so for me it's a little bit more of a historical thing like looking back like okay what what did the scene look like at this exact time what what was um what was happening and i think that was it was a really interesting time for sort of punk rock in somewhere like california you had sort of grunge which was kind of folding mm-hmm. punk and metal together which you know we we look at a lot in the, in the book in the everyone kind of listens to a bit of, bit of a mishmash of everything. It, it would be nice to have, you know, like very sort of clean lines between things, but life never works that way. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're talking, you're looking at the scene around sort of like Gilm Street, which is the sort of pub and club, club in California, which, which, you know, was sort of launched Green Day and uh, Operation Ivy, which then turned to Rancid and all that kind of thing. So yeah, it just, it just seemed like a good fit for the book. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, being a, a product of that time, you know, I, I had all the, the sort of, there, there's, there's a line in the, in, in the book where, where a character refers to, uh, you know, another group as sub pop wannabes. And I was like, Oh my God, that is, that's perfect. That's like perfect 1994 right there. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, yeah, exactly. Like even just the record label was, was very sort of interesting in that it was sort of taking things, like all of a sudden, sort of like, you know, Nirvana blows up and, and all of a sudden they have this money and this um, clout. And all of a sudden these weird sort of punk bands and punk adjacent bands can suddenly... Um, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting, especially after, you know, coming off the tail of all like Motley Crue bullshit and all that kind of thing. <laughs> absolutely um yeah no i i uh i had a lot of those sort of mandatory uh not you know albums of the time so like you're super unknown your downward spiral your dookie your nirvana unplugged um and and then you know more embarrassingly i will also admit to having owned hootie and the blowfish's cracked rear view because look those songs were catchy those guys knew exactly what they were doing (laughs) 
we didn't know better. It was the mid nineties. Yeah, <laughs> it was a more innocent. You know, I don't think I don't think I've ever heard Hootie. I don't think I would know what they sound like. Um, I've only ever heard them used as a punchline. Like <laughs> <laughs> they are perfect pop rock of the mid nineties. It they 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 were what was on the tin. Right. Like, you know what? Less, <laughs> of, less offensive Dave Matthews band. Okay. Mm, <laughs> that, yes. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think I can kind of, I can kind of put a picture into my head. Yeah. Um, so last week when that, uh, that, that old, that meme was going around of like, you know, find an old picture of yourself. That's an album, you know, that's your album cover uh going around <laughs> on twitter yeah. yeah so there there was you had put up that that picture uh of you looking you know again the spiked like red hair like you said uh you know very much looking like a like like a like a punk marilyn manson uh bass player something <laughs> like that uh you know how, how uh you know what, what's a what's what's a story from you know kind of being uh in the scene at that time that you can you know a share <laughs> and, and be kind of look back on fondly. <laughs> I mean, taking those photos, that's what those photos you're talking about. Like, like there's, a, there's a few, um, a few incriminating photos that have survived. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so, so just sort of wearing, um, yeah, street punk gear with black metal corpse paint, which was a strange combination that very much appealed to us because we liked all of that stuff. Um, and we decided it was a mate and I, mate of mine and I who decided to start a band um, despite not playing very much, either of us. Um, but, you know, we had a drum machine and uh, we decided that, frankly, the more important part anyway was the band photos. So <laughs> I think I think sort of three tracks were sort of half made and abandoned, but the photos <laughs> were prioritised. So... Most of those photos are taken. We we went around the neighbourhood and broke into graveyards uh, in the middle of the night. Um, through, I mean, I, I say broke in as if as if we sort of you know went along with sort of pliers and things like we we found gaps in fences and and stuff like that or climbed and uh, posed around gravestones um, and came very very close to getting caught by a groundskeeper. <laughs> Um, and if you can just sort of imagine running in that much leather and studs and makeup, uh, that was that was quite an interesting, an interesting night. Uh, we waited until midnight to do it as well because, of course, that was it. It felt um, felt black metal. Of course. <laughs> I, I imagine it's like you know being in the military and running with all your gear on. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know. In the military, at least, like your gear is designed to be run, running. Uh, I think I was wearing something like four belts, <laughs> one of which was a bullet belt. So yeah, it wasn't the most practical getup. Oh, um, one thing this book has a lot of, which uh, again, very accurate for the time that it's set, is sm smoking teenagers, and I feel like it stands out to me more <laughs> because it's not it's not something I and and you know maybe it's different in England, maybe it's not, but I, I feel like I don't see it as much. But you know, I, and, and obviously nobody's encouraging teenagers to light up, but like being a teenager at that time, like I distinctly remember like 
a sea of students puffing like right across the street from like the high, the high school. So like, you know, just far enough off property that nobody could tell them not to because, you know, they, they knew exactly where they could get away with it. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a small thing, but like the more I look back on that time, like having, ne even though I never smoked, like other people's cigarettes were a very big part of my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, these, these were the kind of, I mean, you know, we're doing sort of big Power Rangers stuff and big ghost stuff, but these were the kind of moments that I really kind of wanted to capture. Just, uh, yeah, what, what that kind of thing. I mean, there was, it was, it was a little different for us, I guess, because the big thing, the big problem with trying to smoke after school is a uh, school uniform, obviously. Mm -hmm. So you had that because you could just get rumbled for what, what school you're at. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that was, you know, a problem. So the trick was always to, uh, you'd, you'd stuff your blazer in your tie, which were the identifying, uh, bits of, bits of clothing into your bag. Um, so that you could smoke, um, close enough to the school without, without, with, with plausible deniability. Uh, that that's where you went. That's what I remember from from smoking as a as a as a school kid, at least. Um, but you know, don't do that, kids. Like, and also, like like the, the idea of rebellion, like like smoking as rebellion, was something that I think I realized at some point was the only only real appeal it had to me. Uh, I hit I hit eighteen when, where it became legal for me. It actually became legal for me to smoke twice because they changed the, the smoking age when I was a kid was 16 in the UK. Mm. Uh, and then when I turned 16, they turned it, they changed to 18 and I smoked and I was furious because um, <laughs> I've been smoking for, I've been smoking illegally for like two years and then it got changed again. So I had to smoke illegally for another two years. Uh, but as soon as I turned 18 and it was definitely legal and going to stay legal, I quit <laughs> like essentially on my 18th birthday. So uh, the, yeah like the sort of dumb things you would do as rebellion um, is definitely a big factor in homesick pilots. Uh, you know, the whole thing starts off with, with kids trying to find somewhere to, to throw good squat gigs. Mm -hmm. So breaking into sort of abandoned empty houses and bowling alleys and, and all the sorts of coolest places that, that we could, that, that they could, sh they can throw shows. So something else from the nineties that, was big from that same period was vertigo and mm. you i think came onto a lot of people's radars from your work uh in lucifer um which we will get back to later uh but have you read a lot of that 90s vertigo especially the stuff that is punk rock influenced uh Grant morrison's kill your boyfriend and bits of the invisibles the hellblazer stuff with john uh as part of mucus membrane I mean, yeah, I've read all of that. <laughs> like that was always very much my, uh, very much my my thing with comics was going to the library and putting out ratty old Hellblazer trades, and they always had like the weirdest kind of stuff. Um, yeah, like they had Kill Your Boyfriend, and I mean, I don't think I, I managed to track down most of the Invisibles eventually. Uh, yeah, I mean, I. I think that stuff comes from a similar i mean that stuff really a lot of that stuff's rooted in 2000 ad mm -hmm. absolutely um, like I, I i which i sort of realized I, I mean i always sort of knew that and i sort of realized it when i did a i did a the first time i did a vertigo panel in the uk and i realized it was only a, it was basically just a 2000 ad panel with me on it <laughs> um yeah that, that was it was sort of you know it was like chris weston and um Rob Williams and like all these guys who like have been doing stuff for 
2000 AD for like years and years. I was like, oh, this is, it really is like a, a big thing that Vertigo was formed of uh, 2000 AD um, writers and artists. Um, but yeah, like that old school Vertigo stuff, that was always the kind of thing I wanted to do in comics. Uh, I think you can go like go right back to Limbo, Casper and my first uh, first collaboration. That was a real howl to try and return to a slightly more Vertigo-ish uh, sensibility. Yeah, like we weren't trying to sort of mimic, a, 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 you know, things that have gone past, but it was just a sense of abandonment uh, and wildness that we weren't seeing a lot of at the time. That was sort of when... That was around the time when a lot of film and TV were starting to notice comics and comics felt to us like they were starting to notice back and they were going, oh, look at this. It wouldn't be too expensive to sort of produce. Uh, so, <laughs> and we just really didn't want to do that. We wanted to do something that was um, almost unadaptable. Uh, and that, to me, was a, was a big part of the appeal of that old Vertigo stuff where it would just be very much of its time. It would be sort of hammered out um angry uh and just as experimental as it wanted it to be but not trying to sort of throw that in in your face as as the sort of only thing it had going for it mm -hmm. um it was always just it was experimental if it needed to be it was um yeah we just kind of wanted to wanted to do that i mean that the early that early Hellblazer, especially Delano stuff, is so punk rock and so 2000 AD in its anti-Thatcher-ness <laughs> and is something that I think if uh, you've read it, uh, since you're involved in the Sandman universe stuff, that uh, the Spurrier, current Hellblazer, Spurrier yeah. stuff is channeling that Delano early Hellblazer. Yeah, 100%. I think you can see that size had this... Uh... I mean, I, I mean, I, you know, I know so well. Like he, a lot of a lot of sort of his pub talking points have, have come up in that book, and that's been fun to sort of watch. Um, his sort of like ang anger at, at that kind of thing is very, very genuine. Um, and by that kind of thing, I mean unfairness and unkindness. Um, like the uh, the 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 hospital um, issue in particular was, was the NHS um, issue, which I think was issue six. Um, yeah, that was that was magnificent. You know, talk, talking about the art in the book, uh, there's there's a page um, that is basically it's it's just that you're just looking at the house, right? And it, it, it the sky is changing colors to mark the passing of time. Nothing's happening, but it's it's beautiful and the colors are amazing. And it was one of those moments where like, you know, I think I've like lost track of the credits. So I'm scrolling back up to see, oh man, who colored this? And then I realized, oh, Casper's doing everything. Uh, yeah. You know, Casper's a machine. Uh, given that, you know, he's inking himself, he's coloring himself, you know, how far, are, how far out are you guys uh, working on this book? Like, how far out ahead are you? Um, I mean, Casper is um, an astonishing artist and he's incredibly fast for what, he's, what he does as well. Um, so we've nearly wrapped the first arc. Four issues are entirely in the can. Um, He's actually taking a little bit of a break to do some other stuff, um, but it's not going to be a break in the actual production. Um, we're, the plan for this is to just keep going um, month by month. So uh, we, yeah, 
we're sort of four issues four issues deep issue one comes out in two months so we're out as far as i think we need to be um the art i mean the art is 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 pure casper um he he has i think a unique style um the colors are the first thing that anyone um comments on for sure like whenever they whenever they open the book it's the same thing with limbo i still have limbo on my sort of table when when conventions are a thing uh, in the world um and people will all the time people will pick it up and just go oh the colors the colors the colors um <laughs> and yeah i i mean i always think it's uh i always think it's strange when when people don't get casper to color himself like <laughs> um i always try and make him do it if we're doing anything together um as long as he's got time mm-hmm. um i think he's he, his stuff I mean, he's he's an astonishing like draftsman anyway. But his stuff, um, he's so uh, he's an artist with a vision, like a like a genuine vision when he when he approaches a page. Uh, so so letting him realize that himself is, I think, always the best way best way to get the best work. Um, and this is like the, one of those kind of books that couldn't, which I always it's always what I want an image book to be, which is a book that couldn't exist without that uh, specific collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, neither Casper nor I would have conceived or made Homesick Pilots without the other. Um, there, are, there are certain projects where it's like, oh, it, it might've just been different with a different artist attached or whatever. Like this really isn't that kind of book. It's a real um, sort of hive mind project. Mm-hmm. Um, so the entire visual style is is defined by Casper. The entire sort of, the look of the ghosts, which then in turn sort of influenced how they behave and how we treat them in the book. That was all um, entirely collaborative. Um, the era again is, is something I think we sort of landed on the year together, 1994, because Casper wanted to draw certain things. He wanted to draw certain fashions. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just a blast. Like it's, it's really cool to be working together again because we've taken sort of, four years it's been four years since we worked on anything major together mm-hmm. um and we've he's been off doing stuff at marvel i've been doing stuff at dc so to sort of come back together with sort of new powers <laughs> is um is is really cool and yeah we're having we're having a real blast that's great uh and then you've also got tom muller uh working as a designer on this book right yeah yeah we've got tom on design we've got uh aditya bidikar on letters um mm-hmm. who i think is is Definitely one of the best uh, letters working today. Um, yeah, and and Tom Tom's phenomenal. Tom's like um, been doing so much stuff for us <laughs> as we've been like putting together sort of uh, stuff ahead of, of the book launching. Um, yeah, I mean Tom, I I don't know what how much there is to say beyond like Tom is 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 definitely one of the best designers working in in comics at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh so in addition to homesick pilots you've also got the picture of everything else uh coming out next month from vault uh and and i'll just again i'll just go ahead and read the the descriptor for the listeners uh as the 20th century dawns art promises to change the world and steep it in blood uh, a rash of impossible killings sweep through paris tearing the rich and beautiful apart in their beds 
When two art thieves stumble upon the portraits of the victims damaged in the exact same manner they died, it appears the man who once painted the immortal portrait of Dorian Gray uh, has returned with darker plans for future works. Uh, so uh, I wanted to ask first, uh, how did you connect with your, uh, your artist on this book, uh, on Picture of Everything Else, uh, Kishore Mohan? Kishore, uh, uh, I was introduced to by Ram V. Um, who is the writer of, you know, yeah. everything. Uh, <laughs> the writer of uh, These Savage Shores and Justice League Dark. Um, he's doing the, the um, Swamp Thing Future State books. Um, mm -hmm. He's just had um, Blue and Green. Um, kind of, that's probably enough plugging for Ram. He's a, he's a, studio, <laughs> mate. He's a studio mate of mine, so, uh, so it always yeah. behooves uh, to plug each other's stuff. Um, but no, he did the first book Ram did was um, was a book called Black Mamba, uh, which mm. he kickstarted himself, and I think put him on a lot of radars. Um, and that was with a with a with a bunch of different artists, most of whom he's gone on to work with um, at, at Image. Actually, most of them, he's, yeah, straight up gone on to work with Image because he, he had Dave Dave in there who who did um, Paradiso, mm -hmm. uh, and Anand who, is, who just did Blue and Green with him. Uh, but the other artist in there was was Kishore, and Kishore and I have been talking. So, like Ram put us together. He he, he said, "Hey, I think you guys should should, should chat because I think you guys would 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 do something cool together." Um, and we've been trying to get a project together for ages. We we had a horror western pitch that that, I, that we still sort of talk about and might go back to. Mm -hmm. um, but when I landed on the idea of the picture of everything else, I knew it had to be with Kishore because he does these beautiful beautiful watercolors um and i knew that if we were going to make a book about art and that sort of era of art he was absolutely the the go-to guy um and when i sort of pitched him the idea he got super excited and he, he sort of picked up dorian gray the next day and <laughs> it was like sending me pictures like oh what about this what about this so yeah like it, it's yeah um it's been a real uh Real interesting one to put together. It's been a lot of research, a lot of um, a lot of period research. Uh, weirdly, I found it easier to write, um, you know, reprobate punk kids than I do to find it find it easy to write <laughs> the end of the Victorian era. So, you've led right into something as I'm about to possibly bore our listeners in, maybe you, uh, but. <laughs> part of my degree was uh, Gothic literature and Dorian Gray is a, a favorite of mine and one that at least outside of academic circles doesn't get the same sort of oomph behind it as Dracula or Frankenstein or Jekyll and Hyde as one of those foundational texts of horror literature. Is it something you read and you know, early on and is a f kind of foundational for you or is it something you came across later? Yeah, no, I, I read it. I don't know, when did I first read it? Um, I mean, the fact that I'm struggling to remember when I first read it probably says, <laughs> says enough. Like, it, it's, yeah, like, it's not something I sort of picked up in the last year or so. It's a, yeah. Um, I mean, my, my, uh, my mom's a, an English teacher, so we always had all of this kind of stuff. Like I had it sort of thrust upon me as a sort of, you know, I, sort, I think I sort of started reading Frankenstein when I was like 11 and that kind of thing. Um, just cause they were in the house and you just sort of pick them up. Um, yeah. Um, Dorian Gray, I think, I think 
maybe one of the reasons it doesn't get the same, have the same standing is that, you know, 80 to 90% of the book isn't about any of that. It's not about the picture. It's not about the sort of, um, it's not about the immortality. It's not about the monster. Um, it's, it's just about how people, well, it's about a lot of things, but it's about, it's a lot about perception and how people were perceiving each other at the time. And, and, you know, um, about transgression and taboos and, uh, you know, you never really get anything spelled out for you in, in Dorian Gray. They never say, you know, we remember him as this sort of Sardian figure where he did all these sort of horrible things. And it's never said in the book other than, other than one, one teensy weensy murder. Um, it's never really said what he, what he does. It's always left entirely up to, up to the imagination. Um, and I think maybe just because it came a little bit later than those books as well. Um, it came later than Frankenstein came later. I mean, it's, it's Gothic, but it's right at the end of, I think what you could kind of call Gothic or romantic. Like that's kind of part of what I thought was interesting about, I mean, it's part of why I think it's interesting about Wild, and it's part of what I thought was interesting about returning to the to the text was that it really happens right at the end of an age and the dawn of another one. I mean, not just the turn of the century, but you know, the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century really feels like it was a big a big flip, a big a big sort of change. I mean, the the nineteen oh one. Uh, or 1900 had the sort of the, the world expo in Paris, which is what the, um, the um, Eiffel Tower was built for. And, you know, it was supposed to be the sort of bastion of look at the bright, amazing future we're going to have, um, which I think is an interesting thing. I mean, you know, that's, and when you're looking, thinking about the fact that Oscar Wilde was still kicking around, I mean, just about still kicking around. He'd been, his life had been sort of destroyed and his reputation had been destroyed, but the fact that, that that world is sort of cravats and polite high society was sort of hand in hand with uh, this technological future that was starting to be built. You know, it, it takes you quite far from sort of Dracula and Frankenstein, which was Frankenstein in particular, which I guess is sort of the dawn of sci-fi and the dawn of, of that sort of even the idea of, of we, we could move away from maybe supernatural monsters into, into more um, science-led affair. Are you looking to play with some of those themes from Dorian Gray, or is Dorian Gray sort of the jumping-off point for whatever horror themes you are looking to explore in this one? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a a bit of a bit of both in the. Um, I don't want the book to just be an exploration of Dorian Gray. Uh, there's, there's the reason it's not about him and he's not in it. Go back to a lot of the themes and a lot of the sort of um, subtext of Dorian Gray and we don't have to make them subtext uh, because we're not writing in the 1890s when you know, we can be put on sort of, uh, we can be put on the stand for sort of homosexuality and, and all that kind of thing, which is, you know, literally what happened to, to Wilde after Dorian Gray. And Dorian Gray was used as, 
part of the part of the evidence that he was a he was a, a gentleman of poor standing and, and had to go to jail. Um, so we're definitely looking at some of that stuff. And but really, you know, that was a book that came out in the 1890s because he had things to say then. This is a book coming out in 2020 because we have things to say now. But I would definitely say that some of them rhyme. Um, the idea of progress kind of masking, I think what Wildsaw is something of a cultural backslide um, is definitely, I think, pretty relevant today as we talk on the eve of a certain election. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Try not to think about that one for another. Uh... Yeah, I mean, we got, we got we got like what like thirty minutes in without without mentioning it once. So... <laughs> Took it pretty well there. It's pretty good going. Uh, self on the back. No. <laughs> nice to be distracted for a moment. <laughs> hey, look! By the time this airs, it'll be the future. It'll be the future, and <laughs> and hopefully that's a reason to be hopeful and not the other way around. Either everything will be okay or. Yeah. I mean, hopefully if people are hearing this, this means that, you know, things have, things have gone okay. Because the other, you know, the other option is that the bombs have dropped or the electricity has been cut off and, you know, none of us have, we have sort of rats for phones and, you know, we could be there. Boy, things really took a turn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, hold on. I just got to call my rat phone. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what makes uh, this book, uh, Picture Everything Else, you know, what makes this a vault book versus uh, uh, Homesick Pilots being uh, an image book, uh, you know, in your mind? Um, an image book is, is something of a trapeze act <laughs> in that uh, you are doing something um, that's very much you're doing it yourself. I mean, I have, I have a support group in the, in the sort of white noise guys and, and, mm -hmm. and everything, but um, there's a difference between that and working with a full sort of editorial team, which is what Bolt has. Mm -hmm. um, so doing something that's a little bit more um, historically nuanced, I guess, than, uh, you know, they're both technically historical books, I guess, but uh, uh, the picture editing house needing a little bit more uh, robust research and a little bit more um, back and forth and a little bit about, hey, what about this? What about this? Um, having the Vault guys there, having Adrian at Vault uh, there as an editorial hand um, is definitely helpful. Um, I mean, also just, just the fact that Vault have the sort of like nightline um, uh, like um, umbrella and, and the picture of Dorian, uh, the picture of everything else mm -hmm. is far more outright a horror book than Homesick Pilots, which is a little bit more of a, a mm -hmm. you know, it's it's a little bit less easy to define by sort of genre lines. Mm -hmm. So you are uh, writing the recently announced uh, DC Future State Superman Wonder Woman, and that's so new and there's so yeah. little out there i doubt you can say much about it and we respect and understand ndas um but is there anything you can tell us i mean the solicit text makes it seem like this is going to be a big action type book yes 
yeah no i think i think i can i think i can say that um <laughs> it's uh i've got to say that, so that that was one where okay so i've done <clears throat> i've done lucifer i've done sort of uh ocean master i've done a lot of villains and i've done a lot of horror books like my creator own stuff has been there's been a lot of horror work and when i have done superheroes it's been like the shadow or you know it's been something that's been dark and dark and gloomy and 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 broody um so when they asked me to do superman wonder woman i was absolutely um ecstatic because the i like just just to stretch out in a different direction and do something that was just fun and exciting and and optimistic um i just, i just really wanted to do that right now uh so yeah it's a, it's a big fun action book we're definitely taking the sort of future thing in in a more utopian i wanted to push in a more utopian direction rather than not everything has to be, you know, um, Age of Apocalypse, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, we can we can have we can look at bright futures, and if we've got a Superman, if we've got a Wonder Woman, if we've got sort of generations of Superman and Wonder Woman, then we would have a better world. We would have a brighter world, I think. Uh, so that's yeah, that's that's really what I wanted to do with that book, um, and it's been so much fun. I mean, I'm getting to work with the best team. I've got. Uh, Leila Del Duca, I've got um, Jordi Belair. I guess it's you know a real a real dream team um, as far as I'm concerned. That's great. Um, at the same time as all of this, uh, because you're writing all the things, uh, you've still got Coffin Bound coming out from Image, which uh, wrapped its second arc the week that we're recording this with issue eight. Um, do you do you see, you know? Uh, does that one have a defined endpoint, or is that one that you know you're, you you know is going to keep going as all these other projects are coming up? I mean, we're taking a break after this one, um, okay. so issue eight is a. Uh, I mean, the, the the first both both of the books of Coffinbound have been <laughs> written with the idea in mind that they're basically like novels. Mm. Um, so we're essentially two novels into the into the series. Um, the sort of idea behind Coffin Bound is that the, the, the premise of the book is right in the title. Mm-hmm. So every arc by, by the very nature of the book has to have quite a substantial change because otherwise we'd be lying in the title. <laughs> um, <laughs> it always has to be about someone who's Coffin Bound and they're always mm-hmm. going to get there by the end of the book. We're not, we're never putting that into question. It's never a, it's never a book about survival. It's mm-hmm. a book about death and how we handle death. Um, and how we get there and how we um how we handle knowing that we're we're going there which is you know i think about the most universal feeling because it literally is a universal feeling um Mm -hmm. so that's what we've always wanted to explore with that book and that's why we've always sort of treated it as as novels as four issues you know we, we do four issue run uh runs with a with a bumper sized issue in there somewhere so that we get you know a nice a nice length book mm-hmm. um after this we, we when we were sort of coming to the end of writing i was sort of coming to the end of writing this arc i had the idea for what volume three was going to be but actually that ended up compressing quite nicely into the last issue of coffin Man <laughs> of issue eight. um so the story that I thought was going to be another arc's worth of story ended up being uh, one issue. 
um, because stories kind of go how they want to go uh, most <laughs> of the time and you have to listen to them. And if they don't want to be that big, they don't want to be that big. Mm. Um, but it also left us in a place where it was like, okay, so we've actually got to the end of what, what we've talked about. Um, and I went to Danny and, and sort of said, like, like just looking at the way the world is right now, do you really want to jump straight into another book about this? <laughs> <laughs> about about the death drive and about everything that we're basically seeing when we look out the window in a very sort of abstract way because it's mm -hmm. you know it's all about it's always about death and it's always about it's a lot of sort of quite grim research so yeah we talked about it a bit and actually we kind of want to do something else um so we're going to put pause on coffin bound for a bit and mm -hmm. um yeah we're, we're working on something else which would be a little bit a little bit less in that uh, space mm -hmm. and a little bit more yeah there's, there's other things i think that are more interesting to talk about right this minute uh, with the state of the world sure and and you know I, it does kind of feed into my next question a bit uh you know when you're writing something like coffin bound which is is this heavy you know existentialist meditation on on, on death and on the fleetingness of being you know do, do things like homesick pilots things like your future state story you know do they do they feel like palate cleansers for for you while you're working on them? Because it's 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 such a. <laughs> I mean, change. yeah, and then it <laughs> and then it goes back the other way. You know, sometimes you just want to like dig into the despair. Um, yeah, I, I mean, having a variety of of things on the go, um, style wise as well. Like it always it always feels like the way to keep things fresh. It can be a bit of a it can be a bit of a bit jarring mentally when you have to move between projects in a day. Um, I'd definitely say that because sort of move, moving between utopian Superman and and yeah, coffin bound and someone's stripping off their skin because they want to you know get to the get to the truth of the insides and the existential nature of being. Those yeah, those are definitely like different different gears um, mentally. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think I think life contains all of it, so you need to sort of have access to all of it to make good art. Mm -hmm. uh, so we talked about this uh, uh, a little bit, uh, kind of a, a, you know, cavalcade of Rambi there for a little bit, but uh, you're, you're one of a, a quartet of, of, of British creators along with uh, Ram and Alex Bachnadel and, and Ryan O'Sullivan, uh, White Noise Collective. And the four of you have released some great books the past few years, you know, uh, uh, including, you know, your stuff. There's also, you know, Friendo, Fearscape, These Savage Shores, uh, other books that weren't released by Vault. Uh, but <laughs> the, uh, the past couple of years, you know, you've all begun infiltrating the big two. Uh, you know, Dan, you've written Lucifer and House of Whispers. Uh, you're doing Future State. Rom's on Catwoman now. He's on Justice League Dark. Uh, Alex did some of the Empire tie-ins over at Marvel this uh, late summer, you know. Uh, how do you feel like that your your collective quest for world domination is going according to plan? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No one's no one's given us laser guns yet. So you know, um, <laughs> yet. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess that it's it's great to see that sort of happening, and, and the people who sort of recognise us as a as a unit. Um, White Noise was always intended to be a sort of, um, I don't want to say support group, because it's not like we're all sort of like, you know, 
clutching our elbows and sort of rocking back and forth in sort of <laughs> despair and terror. It's more, it's more just that it's, it's somewhere to bounce ideas off each other. It's somewhere to sort of um, look at each other's scripts. It's, a, it's, it's somewhere to sort of um, support each other. But because we all have sort of, we sort of realized we had sort of similar tastes and similar interests and we wanted to make similar styles of comics and we wanted to have a similar impact, I think, um, on, on where things are going and, and how things look. So, and frankly, that's, it's just, we just wanted to make like good, good books. Um, so we sort of banded together just very loosely. Um, but people have really sort of seemed to respond to it, which has been lovely. Um, it's nice that people like what we're doing. Um, we're going to keep, keep doing it. Um, we're going to keep calling each other on each other's shit. Cause that's the main thing that the studio is there for. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been nice to see the response to it basically. At the same time, are you're also uh, working on a story for uh, Razor Blades, the the horror anthology magazine that uh, James Tynion the Fourth and Steve Fox uh, are curating. Uh, this is this is interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I was curious. You know, what appealed to you about this project? Because you know, we're getting into this 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 period. You know, all this. You know, a lot of projects that were kind of we're lot we're getting into a lot more outside the box uh, stuff because of what happened in the spring with diamond and everything. And uh, so I was, I was just, you know, and razor blades seems to be building a huge head of steam and, and the list of creators involved is, is pretty uh, outstanding. So I was kind of curious, you know, what appealed to you about contributing to uh, this project? I mean, I think it's just a great book, frankly, <laughs> the first two issues have come out and they've been fantastic. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like I've known James and Steve, uh, Steve Fox, who, who, um, curator with James. Uh, I've known them both for, for quite a while um, and I like and respect their work. So so when they approached me, it was kind of a no-brainer. Um, and then I saw how good the first issue was. And just to be honest, the whole the DIY aesthetic, or, or not aesthetic even, just, just approach, um, really there'd be space for sort of we'll try things that lets people sort of have, um, you know, the safety net of an anthology and that they don't have to, they could put something out into the, into the world that they don't know if it would carry, um, carry its own weight without, um, you know, without the other stories. So, I mean, not, not by which I don't mean a weak story. I just mean one that maybe isn't a, a simple pitch that isn't sort of a quick and easy sort of, Power Rangers meets The Shining sort of <laughs> um, cross pit. It lets, it lets people sort of do stuff that's a little bit more introspective and a little bit lets people do stuff that's a bit nasty as well. <laughs> uh, and as you mentioned, both James and anthology and anthologies there, um, was it maybe through James that you got involved with the Batman Secret Files from a few months ago? Uh, you wrote uh, Afraid of America, which for me was the highlight of a solid book. Um, and again, eerily prescient for the day that 
we're ahead of. Um, <laughs> um, or it's six days that. behind. Or it's six days oh, yes. behind us. True. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, yeah, yeah. To, yeah, to answer your question, yes, James, uh, James, one hundred percent was responsible for bringing me in on that. Um, yeah, I, I, I knew him for a, a while before that. Um, and obviously he was he was working with Ram on on Justice League Dark and and things so we knew he knew he knew all of us um, in the studio and, and things, um, yeah they they um, James and the editor on that book yeah approached me and asked me they but they specifically asked me to to handle that character um, Gunsmith who's a new villain who who's sort of shtick is that he can he can turn anything into a gun, um, and to be honest I just wrote a story about. I mean, it really is how I feel about America <laughs> as as a non-American, um, which I don't mean which I don't mean to be, to be sort of flippant with, but uh, just just the idea that you that you guys have guns um, everywhere that I, I it's not something that's normalised to me, um, and so it is something I find very very strange, and it's something that sort of stays in my head the entire time I'm in America. Um, because again, when it's not a mess of a year, I'm, I spend a fair bit of time uh, in the States. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I just try to tap into that a little bit. Um, and yeah, people responded to that story. It was, it was really nice to see people respond to that story and a bit baffling to see people get angry that I politicized Batman because... <laughs> They wanted, I don't know, like they might have wanted a pro-gun Batman. That was, I don't know how many of the comics they've read. Uh. Listen, we don't need to belabor this point, but man, it, it's it's always weird when people complain about comics being political. Uh, and, and also considering the fact that, you know, somebody who defined Batman for damn near 20 years was uh, a big gun person, but still managed to keep it out of the... Uh, out of the work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's, I mean, it's also it was also an interesting one, and in that that book happened before the events of this summer, before the sort of um, mm -hmm. that sort of reckoning um, mm -hmm. began, uh, and a lot of people seemed to take it as a response to that, but it wasn't. It was, you know, it it, it was stuff that's entirely insipid. It's not none of this is new, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is is again the sort of thing with. The idea that comics are being politicized like specifically now. It's like, no, none of this is new. And all art has always been about politics. Like not the, the argument that, that that art isn't political is an entirely a non-argument. Um mm -hmm. I, I think it's it's just irrelevant and it means people are looking for if 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 you want non-political art, really you're asking for very boring art. Like probably you can find like non-political art might be sort of the teletubbies or you know, um, or a less obscure British, non-British reference. Um, <laughs> that's a different kind of kids' TV show. I don't know. The only ones that are coming into my head are like really British ones now. The Clangers. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Button Moon. <laughs> uh, so you have one more volume of Lucifer that's mm. coming out uh straight to trade OGN format. Uh, did you know that it was shifting to that format when you were working on it? And did you, were you able to play with that? Or 
did you basically have the next five to seven issues of scripts and that's what became the book yeah i mean it's it's um we didn't know i mean it was it you know it's a response to COVID um entirely yeah. like you know, best laid plans and all that mm-hmm. um but it's the end it's the end of the book so it hasn't affected what we have as an end result you know like i always kind of write a little bit towards the trade because i think those are the things uh that that we keep and cherish and, and and have for sort of decades on decades and get reprinted and and you know hopefully and and all those sort of things um and and especially with with sandman you know that's, that's very much the, the style of the book it is but so i'd always treat uh every issue like a like a chapter of i mean it's the same kind of thing i was saying with Kaufman. it's like chapters of a novel um so it hasn't affected what we're going to have at the end of the day. It just means we didn't get the, the floppies of those issues, uh, which is a shame, but um, mainly because we had some, some really beautiful Tiffany Thrill covers coming up as well. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I, like I, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that we got to finish our story and the world really conspired to make it not happen. Um, and my editors made it happen anyway. So, you know, mm-hmm. I'm really chuffed that that's coming out. And it, I I think the end of that story is my favorite part. So I hope people do pick it up. I've enjoyed the, the book as a whole, but it seemed like each trade got more, it grabbed me more and more. That last bit with the wild hunt, I thought was tremendous. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you. Um, yeah, like I think as, as Lucifer and I got to know each other better, um, <laughs> the sort of pace definitely picked up and, and I tried to do horrible, horrible things to him because, you know, <laughs> you might as well torture the devil because it's the only chance you're going to get. Uh, so uh, what are you reading right now? What am I reading? Oh, my God. Um, I'm looking around because I'm sat on my couch and there's a load of stuff. Everything that sat next to me on the couch is going to reveal what I'm working on <laughs> uh, next. Um, I don't know. I've just, I've just been, I've been reading a lot of Murakami novels. Uh, that's been my big Mur- Murakami is my like big stress buster as a, as a writer. Um, so I try and read a novel or two of his a year because I don't want to run out. And I've read like six in 2020 so far because I just, you know, <laughs> I think we need, uh, we need that kind of thing. Um, well, sorry, I mean, I, I mean, to be honest, the, most of the comics I've been reading have been the ones uh, from the studio that are coming out now because the, the Vault books are starting to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, a Dark Interlude, uh, Ryan O'Sullivan, Nanjo Mutti is uh, astounding um, and so, uh, so dark uh, and deliciously sort of sharp and cruel. Uh, in the best kind of way. Um, and I think people can have a lot of fun with that. Uh, Giga um, by Alex and John Lay is, is, is I think the next big, next big thing um, by, by all accounts, um, mm-hmm. which is amazing. It's, it's very, very Alex, uh, Alex's take on the Mecca kind of, kind of genre, um, which is, which has been fun because he's a good friend of, of Casper and mine. And so we've both been sort of working in, very very different ways in that kind of mecca space and alex is the most sort of one of the smartest 
uh, smartest writers I know, and he has this sort of very sort of classic sci-fi, but Ballardian kind of um, approach to things. So his take on the mecha genre is not what anyone else would would have done with it, and it's not what anyone's kind of expecting it to be. Mm. Um, so that's been you know just watching those books come out has been has been um, fantastic. <sighs> what else am I reading? <laughs> Um, uh, it's yeah. it's it's our number one question for putting pe- guests on the spot. <laughs> yeah, no, always, always, I, I, you know what? It's asked in every interview, and I always forget what all books are. Um, <laughs> I remember, I remember when I was like doing my interview for for university, um, and I, I applied late, and so I had to do the whole thing by like interview. And I, I did a really good interview, and, uh, and then I was just asked, like, what, what, so what have you been reading? And I just entirely blanked, and the only thing I could think of was Paradise Lost. <laughs> it was the only book I had in front of me, and it was the only book that came to mind. And I was just like, I was like what an absolute wanker to, to just, like, what, what are you reading? Paradise Lost. <gasps> you know, it's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, it's a wonderful book, but it's not, it's not a page turner in the same sort of way, is it? It's not Murakami. <laughs> not quite. Uh, well, well, Dan, this has been a great hour. Uh, as we're wrapping up, uh, how can people follow you and uh, keep abreast of, of all the books you got coming out, of which there are many? <laughs> well, uh, best way is uh, definitely Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at DanPGWatters, uh, 2Ts, Waters. Um, I am technically on Instagram at the same, at the same app. Um, but I, I'm trying to use that a little bit more, but, but Twitter really is, is where I live on the internet. Um, newsletters and things happen sporadically, but, but those would all be posted through there as well. All right. Well, uh, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a real blast. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire, meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQcomics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones at Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. WMQA.